right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be alive, courtesy of your grace and mercy. Help us not take for granted any of the details of of life or the blessings of life that you give us, including breathing, eating, just doing the simple things, having the simple blessings that we take for granted in this country. Father, give us more humility, more faith, more hope, and more trust in your word. Most of all, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and how he took care of our sin once for all at the cross. So those who trust in him do not have to worry about eternal death or condemnation, but have been made righteous through him. Father, we ask that you bless this message, guide us by your spirit, and it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. All right. Seems a little bit uh, warm up here. How, how's it feeling out there? Is it extra warm tonight? Okay. Yeah. I don't know. If we can lower the heat a little bit, great, but if, if not, don't worry about it. And it could be the floodlights up here. Who knows? All right. So we're continuing with what is good and who gets to define it, part eight. I want to start with something Pastor said on Sunday morning regarding our role in sharing the good news. And he said this kind of thing, you know, in the past a few times, but uh, it really just hit me Sunday morning and I wanted to put it down in writing for us all to see. And this lines up with how a man must be born of God, as we've been studying, and, uh, or by God even. Must be born of God or by God, by not by his own will, in other words, not by his own wisdom or power or ability. So here's what Pastor said on Sunday morning. As soon as we become more than a waiter, or esteem ourselves as more than a waiter, that's when we muck it up. So you've got, you know, two things here. Um, becoming more than a waiter, like you might say physically getting in the way physically making changes to God's recipe. And then you've got esteeming yourself as more than a waiter. Where in your head you become a little bit arrogant and think that your position is more than just serving or sharing or passing on the message of the good news. So the message is pretty simple. Um, Don't change God's recipe. Don't try to spice up the gospel when it's already perfect. And if you don't know the gospel, you don't fully understand the gospel, keep studying, keep learning, keep reading your Bible to get a more you know, confident conviction on the gospel. But we have been well trained here on the fullness of the gospel, so don't try to add to it or make it more palatable. And that's a test for all of us um, as we go out and, and spread the word, as we obey the command that we're all said to be evangelists, to do the work of an evangelist, for example, um, obey the Great Commission, don't fall into that temptation. And really, this is a good thing. This actually takes pressure off of us. It's not about um, how we can massage the gospel, you know, make it more acceptable or whatever. It's not about that. We shouldn't even be going there. Um, just deliver God's bread, so to speak, his perfect bread, the bread of life, who is Jesus Christ. 
So the statement on the board reminds me of the Apostle Paul's intense focus when preaching the gospel. Uh, one of the phrases that sticks out from this pulpit even the last uh, year or so maybe is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul said, I don't want to know anything about you. I don't really want to know about your sins, your failures, or uh, you know your past. I want to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified in 1 Corinthians 2. And if that's our attitude, and Jesus Christ is the focus, then He's our focus when we share the gospel too. We don't let it become about us. It's about Christ, His crucifixion, and His resurrection. If we stick to that, we'll be a good waiter. So it's all about Him and the payment that He made out of love. It's not about us and our fine words and persuasion, as Paul would even say. On Sunday, the Spirit had us revisit John 1, verse 12, as a reminder that it's not all about us. It's all about God. So turn in your Bibles to John 1, verse 12 again. This was from our series on the God-man. You know, passages like this make it crystal clear that, that we, we can have no effect of our own on our salvation, for example. Um, it's got to be of God. And if it's of God, the only thing you can do is ask of God for it because he's the only source and he's the only one with the power to get it done. John 1, 12. But as many as received him, uh, we saw in our last series, it's Lombano, to take hold of him. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe or trust in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That is the only solution. He is the only solution. A man must be born of God. And this is a supernatural event we're talking about, being born again. It's not something any man can will into place. He could be the strongest man, the most spiritual person, um, I don't know, good, right? A good person. What's your definition of good? He could appear to have it all together, but that could be even worse for that man in that situation because he won't let go of his own righteousness and subject himself to God's righteousness. So this being born of God only comes through a surrender which is the opposite of trying to will something on your own, isn't it? If you're going to do what this verse says here, if you're going to try to um, have it be of the will of the flesh or the will of man, well, that's the opposite of surrender. That's willing something to come true on your own in your own ability. What's interesting about this is God gave us an illustration during communion service on Sunday when Michael brought up Satan's way of thinking in Isaiah chapter 14. And that's where Satan goes into his five I wills. I will be like the Most High. I will, I will, I will, I will. It's the same exact thing as John 1.13. So do we fall into Satan's trap? How is Satan, the most powerful creature ever created by the hand of God, 
how is he going to will these things to come true in the face of a sovereign God and creator? He's just deceived, isn't he? We know that. His arrogance is so great, he thinks he can achieve the status of God or be equal to God. So there's the power, or the lack thereof, of will, of the creature's will. So it's the same silliness that comes from the heart of man. What, what, what does man say? I will save myself. I will be good enough, especially in this area. I will make myself born again. I will save a member of my family. That's what we do. As though we could affect eternity. As though when we die, we can follow through on what we willed while we were alive. As if we had some kind of power or control. But honestly, there's not a more f foolish notion than man being able to do these things on his own. As in John 1.13. It's like an arrogant five-year-old saying, I will climb Mount Everest, and I'll do it today, and no one's going to stop me. So how can someone accomplish something if they don't possess the power to accomplish it? How can something will something to come true if they don't possess the power? That, that example is not the best example because it's all natural experience in this world. But how can man will something to come true that's supernatural, that's beyond him? So that's why one has to be born of God, as in uh, John 1.13. Because any other attempt at making oneself new is futile, totally futile, hopeless. We saw several times on Sunday the essential fact that salvation and being born of God lies in God's hands alone and in his sovereign choice. Again, it's like we think we even have a choice. We're so arrogant. But on the board, it's God's choice. Man doesn't decide how God is to reveal himself to his creatures, such that man is somehow convinced of him. That is the pinnacle of creature arrogance. God has chosen both general and special revelation things he has deemed more than sufficient to reveal himself. Now, put it in perspective. God has all knowledge. All knowledge. Nothing slips by him. He knows the future. He knows how you're thinking. He knows what you will think. And he says, the best way to reveal myself is through general revelation, i.e. creation, and then special revelation, i.e. the Word and Jesus Christ. That's the best way. I know all things. That's the best way. And man says, but I want a sign. If you give me a sign, I'll believe you. And God's saying, I've already given you about 100. You just chose to, you know, brush them off in your pride because you don't want to accept me. You don't want to be accountable to me. Really is what it comes down to. So turn again to Luke 16. Um, and we'll start in verse 22 this time. Man doesn't get to decide how God chooses to reveal himself. And again, this should be relaxing to us. Again, it's not about us and our persuasiveness. It's simply about pointing out the obvious. 
That's our job. For example, as a, a tour guide or a waiter, when you give the gospel, that's what your job is. Pointing out the obvious. Guess what? That means anyone can do it. A child can point out the truth of the gospel if he sticks to the gospel. Like, creation, creation is awesome. How can you say that's an accident? That's pointing out the obvious, right? Or, we're all sinners. We can't save ourselves. Can you do that? Can you pass along that message, that simple, pure message? How about Jesus is your God and Savior? You might not understand right now, but He just is. So this is part of the beauty that God's taken the responsibility or the pressure out of our hands, out of our ability. And he says, this is all on me. It's my doing. It's my choice. I want you to just be a good servant. I want you to be a good messenger and pass on the message in its purity. And that takes all the pressure off of us. Share the obvious. Share the truth. And let the chips fall where they may. And guess what? You're free if you do that. There's no pressure giving the gospel if you do that. The only pressure is worrying about being rejected. But that's a fleshly thing, right? A fleshly fear. So by faith, we can just go forward. Look at uh, Luke 16, 22. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. In other words, if you reject God's way of revelation that is perfect, His word in this case, if you reject the prophets and Moses, then any other means you're not going to accept. You're hardening your heart against God's perfect revelation, both creation and and the word, for example, you're not going to accept any other message or messenger. So it's just like man thinking he has a better way than all-knowing God does. It's what we do like every day, even as believers, in our foolishness. I know how to save my family. Send a person resurrected from the dead. 
they'll listen in that case. And to our flesh, that might seem like it would work, right? How could you, you know, deny someone coming back from the dead, right? <laughs> Just think about the ability of the flesh. Besides it being arrogant to suggest God's chosen ways aren't enough, wouldn't man just end up rationalizing a resurrected person away? Especially someone like Lazarus who they didn't respect. So picture this. Someone you know rises from the grave and goes to visit your family member who's an unbeliever who refuses to listen to the word of God. And they look pretty good now. You know, they're out of the grave. They're pretty healthy. They wash their face. They shave, maybe, right? Like the Old Testament says. And they're sitting there eating with your family member, staring them in the face and talking to them, saying, God raised me from the dead. And at first, your family member might be surprised and, you know, shocked and even agree with them. But then what happens what does the flesh do as time passes? They say to their visitor, there's no way God raised you from the dead. Come on, that's impossible. Can you see the flesh doing that? Just give it a few days of familiarity. Wait a minute, you just can't really, something's up here, right? What do we do? We doubt everything. You must have never really died. I can't believe they buried you alive. How horrible. But it's good to have you back. Anything to deny God's hand in it. Anything to deny a miracle. If an unbeliever refuses the word, God's revelation, Moses and the prophets, for example, he's not even going to listen to a resurrected person from the dead. So what is man so good at doing? rationalizing and justifying. Anything to deny God's power or to give God the glory. And that's what unbelievers, you know, they, they do. Until God draws them, until God wakes them up, they're going to be uh, stuck in that place. And even a resurrected person won't get to them. Only the Holy Spirit can actually get to them or break them. So Abraham says to the rich man in Hades, if you look again at the last verse there, verse 31, I think it is, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So there we have divine wisdom right in the word of God, knowing and understanding the fallen nature of man and the curse of the F word, as we've said, familiarity. That's divine wisdom. I know man, like Jesus said, I don't put trust in any man because I know him. I just know the flesh that he's dealing with and the familiarity he keeps falling into. So back to our main point on the board. It's God's choice how he reveals himself. Man doesn't decide how God is to reveal himself to his creatures. That's kind of foolishness. That is the pinnacle of creature arrogance. God has chosen both general and special revelation, things he has deemed more than sufficient to reveal himself. If that wasn't enough, don't you think God would, and as much as God loves us, don't you think God would find a better way if there's a better way? 
of course. So this is what God's choice is in his perfect wisdom. And on the board, God only accepts his way to salvation. Only God can give this new birth to man by grace. A man can't earn it. A man can't figure it out. A man can't will himself to be born again. He has to surrender in faith. He has to repent and trust in Christ. It's the only way. Thank God. A person does not have the will or the power or the willpower to save himself, period. That is the heart of every false religion. Every false religion follows the same pattern. You know, I, I would challenge you to find another religion in this world that says God is the one that saves us. It's all on God. All right, where it doesn't say man has a part in it. Man has to earn it in some way. It's one of the great lies that deceives so many people in this world, that man can somehow save himself or earn his own way with God. As Jesus stated very clearly, as we've seen for a few lessons now, in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And arrogant people don't like to hear that right there. They want to hear that they're spiritual, that they impressed God by their faithfulness, by their attentiveness, by the way they treat others. It's all about them. They don't want to hear this on the board. That Jesus said, you can't even come to me unless the Father draws you. In other words, stop thinking that you've come to me on your own and you're impressing me. You can't come to me unless the Father draws you, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Even arrogant so-called Christians, and this came up on Sunday, they love their religion instead of God. Just think about that. They love their religion or their religious ways so much more than they love God. So they're offended by this statement on the board because they want to have a peace in their own redemption. That's what we're struggling against. That's what we're battling against when we deal with religious people. Is that a pride factor? They think they're religious, just like the Pharisees thought they were religious. And impressing God with their faithfulness. And until a man gets on his knees and admits he's a sinner, and that, he, that he's disgusting compared to God, and that he needs God's grace and mercy to save him, until a man does that, he's not really saved. He's living in a, a lie, trying to earn his own redemption. Salvation doesn't have to do with man figuring out or willing a way on his own. It has to do with God's perfect provision, speaking to man in his way through his powerful revelation. We've seen on the board in Romans 1, 19 through 20, part B, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them so that they are without excuse. It's just a fact. So on the board, we, we talk about man being without excuse. God puts all his messages up on the chalkboard, so to speak, for all to see. If you were here Sunday, you heard Pastor's uh, analogy 
God literally puts all his messages up on the chalkboard for all man to see. People can choose not to read it, whether it be reading the signs in the heavens or reading the word itself. But in the end, it's on them if they deny that God has revealed himself to them. Because why? God has put all his messages up on the chalkboard for everybody to see. If you want to, don't want to look at the chalkboard and pretend that it's not there, that's your choice. That's every man's choice. But God promises he's revealed truth to every man before they die. People can choose not to read it, whether it be the signs in the heavens or reading the word itself. But in the end, it's on them if they deny God has revealed himself to them. Man is without excuse. In our series on the God-man, we saw God revealed himself uh, to man in the greatest, most intimate way possible, beyond our, our imagination even. One forever and always, the word God became flesh and dwelt among us. But he was never separate from the other members of the Godhead. Don't ever think that. He, Jesus was both God and man in one person. And the Spirit gave us a wonderful prelude to God's special revelation to man. So this is what we're starting to get into. On the board, uh, in John 12, 44 through 46, Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. There we see the oneness of God. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And we ended that series with a few examples of the intimacy between Jesus and God the Father. On the board, just as one more review, in Hebrews 1.3, it says, He, Jesus, is the exact representation of God's nature. In Philippians 2.6, Jesus existed in the form of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Jesus is the image of God. John 10.30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And John 14.9, Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. You should see really no separation between those two members of the Godhead. So we have met the God-man, Jesus Christ, and His Word explains Him in all His glory. That's what we concluded. His Word, which is God, explains God and all his glory to us. It's written down for us to, for everyone to see on the chalkboard. And God didn't just stop revealing himself uh, through nature or creation. He could have if he wanted to, but it wasn't the best thing for us because he loves us. He says, I'm going to give you creation and then I'm not just going to leave it be. So you have to figure it out on your own. Um, I'm going to open up your heart through general revelation. I'm going to open up man's heart through creation. So man gets a little humbled and ready to receive special revelation about my son. How awesome is God? Like how like wonderful and gentle is he? Do you see the grace and mercy of God in doing it that way? Where even a child can look up in the, in the stars in the sky and say, where did this come from? There has to be something else. And God 
humbles our hearts, softens our hearts in the gentle way of like a caring father and then says, okay, let me introduce you to my son at the right time for each person. Let me introduce you to my son. So if you don't see God's patience and mercy in that, you know, you need to go home and pray (laughs) and just dwell on it. So back to our series, what is good and who gets to define it? As we just noted on the board, God never fails. If his intention is to reveal himself to his creatures, and that's what the Bible says, then you know what? God reveals himself to his creatures, period. God never fails. To say he doesn't reveal himself to somebody is saying he's not powerful enough to do so or not faithful enough to do so. No man has, never, has ever not known of God's existence in Romans 1.20. Imagine if God did not reveal himself but still had his righteous demands on us as his creatures. That would be kind of silly, right? That's not God. That's not his fairness and love and justice. But because God is perfect and faithful and he never fails, then his ways will be known and no man will be without excuse before he dies. I don't care how much an adult, let's stick with adults here, not children, I don't care how much an adult tells you to your face, you know, God hasn't shown himself to me. I don't see any evidence of God in this world. Now, they may have been through some bad things in their life. You don't know. They may have been through things where they are are hard-hearted or uh, bitter about certain things. So, you know, be gracious. You don't even know where they're coming from. But the point is, there's no man that can honestly say that. All right? It's just not possible. He's blocking out or choosing to block out what God has revealed about creation even. And God has given us his pure inspired word in which we can trust perfectly. Even if we don't understand it all, he's given us his perfect word. As this series has stressed, we must be humble and honest with ourselves that we don't call things good that don't line up with God's good, true good. On the board, we've been talking about this good litmus test. It's very sobering to analyze our own definitions for good. We might quickly realize that what we think and even act upon as good really isn't. A good litmus test is to observe what we esteem or celebrate in ourselves and others. There's a good test for all of us. What do we esteem? What do we celebrate in our own life? in our own heart even, or in the lives of others? And is it really a good thing that we're doing here? Or have we been duped just by years of living in American culture to say, that is, that's, that's good, that's okay. We've got to be honest. We've got to be, do, do you want to do, do things God's ways or not? You know, we have to all be honest and ask ourselves that. Do you really want to honor God in all, all that you do? Because if you do, you'll humbly open your eyes to certain things and say, you know what, that's not good. I know that's not bringing glory to God. As much as you may have rationalized it for 30 years. So the point is God shows true, get, true goodness to those that are seeking. To those that are humble, he will show true goodness to those that really want to know his ways.
to know what is good. And the humble person will also freely admit that only God gets to define what is good. He's not entitled to his opinion on what is good. The Word of God tells us what is good. We're not entitled to our own deviation of it. But what we saw in the Garden of Eden is that uh, Satan and man put God on trial on the board. The oldest trick in the book is to put God on trial. Even though God's revelation is staring man in the face, man puts God on trial in a perfect environment. Can you imagine being in the perfect Garden of Eden not having a sin nature yet and looking at all his creation and then putting him on trial at the same time? It's just mind-blowing. We don't know what that's like, so we're born in sin. We're born with the flesh. We're born with that tendency to doubt God or come up with our own way. But in the garden, the perfect garden, they put God on trial. And today we all still do that. Uh, we talked about on Sunday, what does the average atheist scientist say nowadays? He says, give me proof that God exists, then I'll believe. So this whole idea that you're going to see from people you witness to, too, this whole idea of show me proof, it's really a cop-out. Um, it's their way of not being open-minded, of kind of shutting the door before it gets too serious. Show me proof on the board. This came up Sunday. The presupposition being peddled with such a statement is that God hasn't already revealed himself. They want you to accept their presupposition. Give me proof. God hasn't given proof. What's their presupposition? God hasn't given me proof. When it's all around you in creation itself, the air you breathe, the baby that your wife just had that is alive, even though it can't do anything for itself. But we don't want to give God credit. Man doesn't want to give God credit. So anyway, don't accept this presupposition. When people say this, it's real easy to get defensive and say, okay, let me give you proof. Let me show you the proofs in the Bible. But that's okay with certain people, but it's not okay with people that have this attitude. And that's what you know, the Spirit's going to bring up right now in this message tonight. We have to discern whether the person we're talking to is humbly asking for answers or is presenting us with an attitude of arrogance and argumentativeness. We, we can easily discern that, can't we? Don't you know when someone's being argumentative versus truly humble? I mean, be honest. You, you, you don't have to be like a, a whatever, a speech major, communications major to figure that out. You can tell. You know people's reactions. You know people's eyes. You know the attitude you're getting from them, if there is one or if there's not one. So use that and, and uh, follow that as your guide, what, what you should do, where you should go with the conversation. Let's look at two obvious examples, okay? Two extremes. One person says, I really want to know, why do you believe in God or Jesus? What's the evidence that I can look at? That's one person. In other words, maybe they're humbly asking to be pointed in the right direction, and you can usually tell. 
if they really want to know, if they're really seeking. The other person might say, why do you believe in God? There's no proof. You'll have to show me or I'm not believing. Even without the attitude, you, you can hear the attitude in those words, right? You're going to have to show me or I'm not believing. So there's this wall they're putting up immediately. I'm not open. So that person, you might be like, close your mouth. You might say, you know what? It's already been revealed. Just look around you. And you might have to let that lie. Let them think about it. It might not be the right time for them. The second person in that example is the person we should shut our mouths with, not casting our pearls before swine, as the Lord said. There's a time and a place for that. Even though you don't want it, like even though you want to shake them and make them understand right now, out of love for them, you can't do it. You might do more damage to their soul than if you shut up. So what did Jesus do with those types of people? He spoke in parables so they couldn't understand. Think about that. He spoke in parables so they wouldn't get it because he discerned their skeptical attitude, their arrogant attitude. Now, I'm not saying we should speak in parables, all right? Don't go making up your own parable, you know, unless, you, unless the Spirit leads you one time, who knows? But that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying Jesus didn't give them a straight answer. He didn't directly answer their arrogant heart. And we can discern the attitude people are giving us. So, what we should probably confidently respond to, to those that we can tell are not open, is that God has already revealed himself. Stop denying what you see all around you. If someone is open, then maybe it's the right time and the Father is drawing them in and using you as a privileged vessel to serve the food correctly. The obvious. Remember the obvious about the gospel? That's our privilege. Awesome. And we want, it, we want those every day. That's why we, we want to we push it down people's throats, right, the ones that aren't ready, because we want those opportunities every day. We want people to open up and say, and see the, the truth and the light and the good news. But you, we can't force it. You've got to obey God. You've got to be a good, humble waiter. Not mess with the food. And remember this, too. The best thing we can do is pray. The best thing we can do is pray. If someone's not ready yet. We'd be wise to remember on the board, this came out on Sunday, Wisdom remembers only the very witness and conviction of God through the special ministry of God the Holy Spirit is able to save someone. Only he can crack open that hard shell in their heart and give them a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, as the scripture says. Only God can do that. So we got to humble ourselves even as those obeying the Great Commission and say, only God can do this. I, I can't convince anybody. I'll happily serve the food. I can't get in the way, mess it up. So again, only the very witness and conviction of God through the special ministry of God the Holy Spirit is able to save someone. Everyone listening to my voice right now, 
can probably remember the time when God convicted you. The time when God opened up, you know, that hard heart, if, if that was your case, or maybe it was confusion or doubt or you weren't ready, whatever God did to you. You remember when God convicted you. You know, it may have been once, it may have been more than once, it may have been like a seeking process you went through, but you know, you know when God <laughs> wakes you up, when God opens your eyes. And that's what he's going to do for the person that, you know, is being stubborn right now. But only he can do it. So you have to trust that God can do it. So let's go back to the ways God reveals himself. To every man on the board, general and special revelation. General revelation, God's witness of himself through creation. And special revelation is God revealing himself directly through things like Holy Scripture, Christ's incarnation, dreams, visions, acts, etc. And we, we've seen this in our main passage in Psalm 19. So go again to Psalm 19.1. This is really a wonderful passage. We're kind of in a transition now to, uh, from general revelation to spe uh, special revelation. And the first six verses, again, talk about general revelation. So let's read those one more time. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. There is nothing hidden from its heat. Does that sound familiar at all? We didn't even go to this passage last week. But what did we talk about last week in our series on the God-man? How Jesus, God in the flesh, is likened to the light. And we talked at length about the sun, S-U-N, being a God-given visual aid to help us see God's faithfulness and God revealing himself to man. And what do we see here in verse 6? Nothing is hidden from the sun, from the heat of the sun. Again, God is faithful to every man. He will touch every man by grace, revealing himself before he dies. And in verse 1, look at verse 1 again. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. But these are not verbal words. Like in verse 3, there's no speech, there's no words, there's no voice. But still yet the heaven tells of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. God has his ways. God speaks how he wants to speak to people. Thank God. But it's like the Spirit is merging general and special revelation for us, using the S-U-N to help reveal the S-O-N of God in all his glory. Examples, visual aids. Look at this. Now look over here. You know, He's like 
taking us by the hand, takes everyone by the hand. Sounds just like our God, doesn't it? He's seamless. In everything He does, He's seamless. So I hope you see the seamless transition here from the general revelation to, to God's special revelation for every man. On the board, the simple fact is every person who's ever lived has known that God exists at some point in their lives. Even if it's in their old age, God reveals himself without fail because he's God. As we've seen in Holy Scripture on the board, regarding general revelation, God witnesses to himself through creation. God creates man with a conscience, the ability to know right and wrong, and God also sets eternity in man's heart without fail. These are things God does by grace for every man, regardless of how stubborn he might be. And the final warning we've received, just remember, general revelation is not the gospel. Because someone looks up in the sky and says there must be a God, it doesn't mean they're saved. It means they're on the right track. It means their heart is softening. But the Bible is very clear on the board. The Bible is very clear that a person must believe in Christ to be saved. Not just any God. God became flesh and dwelled among us, and God will make people know that too before they die. So, at this point, just think about the fact that general revelation is like God's kindness leading man to repentance through his creation and nature. It's a show of God's kindness and gentleness so that man can be ripe and ready to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. On the board, we've seen the purpose of general revelation. It reveals the nature of mankind's creator, his holiness, righteousness, sovereignty, majesty, glory, doesn't it? Creation reveal all those things. It's like you've got to be blind to not see God's glory in creation. And remember what glory is. What did we study last week? What, what is God's glory? It's His grace. It's His grace. It's His gentleness towards sinful creatures. So there's another thing that you see in nature, right? The sun can burn you. The sun can also save you, give you nutrients, replenish you, warm you. It's amazing. Um, I was doing a little research online about the properties of the sun and the nutritional value of the sun. Usually if you get nutrition, you have to ingest it, right? You have to take it inside your body. But the sun is giving us nutrition without our decision to ingest. It's interesting, like how God enlightens every man in John 1.9. He actually gives nutrition to our bodies. We know now vitamin D, for example... When you look towards the sun, you get uh, the rays produce um, serotonin in your brain, which helps you wake up and helps you be happy. It's the happy chemical, right, I guess? And then it, it therefore pushes the melatonin aside. But when you don't get sun in your eyes and let the sun through your eyes, you stay in the melatonin place. You wonder why you don't wake up when you have your sunglasses on all the time. All right? It actually said online, don't have your sunglasses on. You need the sun to get in. Why did God design it that way? What a cool example of his provision for every man, how he enlightens every man.
Again on the board, general revelation, it reveals the nature of mankind's creator, his holiness, righteousness, sovereignty, majesty, and glory. Arrogant man's failure to recognize this serves as an indictment against him. However, to the humble, it is on the pathway to salvation, but never the source. We can see God's kindness in both general and special revelation. We might say the following to someone that's seeking God, which he reveals in creation itself on the board, like Romans 2.4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You might say that to someone who's seeking, who's looking at creation and considering what's true. In other words, don't look God's kindness in the face and shun it. Look around you. Look at all the grace you've been shown, even at God's provisions for life itself. Look around you. Are you taking God's kindness for granted? His patience with you for granted? It's a good thing to ask a person and maybe walk away. And then we can tell people God's kindness came to life for them as special revelation. On the board in Titus 3, 4, and 5, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is weaving these things together for us. And the kindness of God is in the middle of it all. The grace and the patience of God is in the middle of it all. So again, on the board, there's general revelation and there's special revelation. Let's go to the second half of Psalm 19, verse 7, to see God's special revelation of himself. Psalm 19, 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There's a humble heart, submitting or surrendering to God's righteous ways and commands. The psalmist here is specifically calling out God's word itself as revelation to us especially in verses um, 7 through 9. God's word itself is special revelation to us, personal revelation to us. 
And the word ultimately reveals the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Whether it's Old or New Testament. God's like, here you go. Here's the truth. You know, he's, he's asking, he's gently leading us on. Do you want the truth or not? Do you want to know the truth? Do you want to be set free? So the word, again, ultimately reveals the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Here's what we can take from this passage. The word is special revelation. In the Old Testament, the law, testimony, precepts, commandment, and the judgments of the Lord, they're all speaking about what the New Testament writers describe as the word in John chapter 1. It's God's special personal revelation. So let's close with this idea tonight. The word transcends just the written word. This came out on Sunday. And I don't know if you, you know, caught it. There were no points on the board, but Pastor kind of ended with this idea. The word transcends just the written word. The word became alive, remember. There are supernatural things that we must humble ourselves before if we want to understand, truly understand God and his word. Isn't that our quest? Do you, do you just want to know what the Word says and be like a robot or collect knowledge, or do you want to understand God? It's a question for all of us, myself included, trust me. Do you really want to know your God and your Savior? We need to think about the Word as God Himself, revealing all His wisdom and glory to us. And it includes God's very essence which he wants us to see more and more of. He wants us to see him in the word. And as also came out on Sunday, God is. It, it, it pays off if we just step back and remember God just is. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. To keep the supernatural in this thing instead of doing what we do in our flesh he just is and this is a revelation of him his heart his soul God's spirit and on the board this came up on Sunday too only God is able to express himself perfectly so it's only right to say that he is the word if you wrote a book about yourself you can't say that is me because you make mistakes you can't express yourself perfectly, and you're not perfect. God's perfect, and he can express himself perfectly, so perfect. I am. This is who I am. Do you want to get to know my heart? And we'll close with this idea, because we had this point again come up on Sunday, uh, God's word on his word. God says that his word means everything to him. And as such, it ought to mean everything to us. What is your attitude toward the word? What, in your heart, what is your attitude toward the word? How do we hold or esteem God's word in our hearts? It should be like looking in a mirror and seeing God himself. Just think about that as you go home tonight. When you look into the word, when you stare down at the word, it should be like, looking in a mirror and seeing God himself. 
He's a person. And the Word gives us these little tidbits and secrets even, uh, intimacies about His person. So if we change our perspective that way, God can open up to us. You know, if you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Just think about that as we go home. Looking in the Word, it's like looking in the mirror and seeing God Himself. Whatever that means to you, let it be. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your Word and your grace and your majesty. We thank you for all the ways you reveal yourself to us by grace and in great kindness and gentleness and patience. We thank you for the awesomeness of your general revelation and creation that we can even enjoy and digest every day, even as believers. And we also thank you for your special revelation, that you didn't leave us wondering who you are. In fact, you revealed your very heart to us in many different ways, especially through your Son, who is the Word. Father, help us look correctly at your word and have the right attitude about who you are and who you want us to see. Open our eyes and our hearts, Father, as only your spirit can do. And give us more humility and faith. We ask these things in Christ's precious name and it's by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen.